This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Modigliani. Mystery scenario structures. And my 2017 London Book Hall. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful, so you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives, like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R or leave immediately for your local game store before it's taken over by the hated British. So, uh, Ken... How's your voice? Uh, my voice is, uh, it has been described as inaudible <laughs> or, um, uh, super sexy or Lauren Hutton esque. <laughs> but I think the best way to describe it is travel ravaged. Yes. There's, uh, one of us sounds more like Nick Nolte than the other, but both of us are sick. I got both sick. of us are sick. Yes. So, uh, we're sharing a particularly lurgy filled travel advisory. Yes. London, as, as, as we all know, is made entirely out of black mold. What <laughs> looks like, uh, stone or brick is actually just compressed black mold that they built the city out of. It's really an example of, you know, myco engineering at its <laughs> finest. Except, of course, that if you stay there when it is damp, which, hey, heads up, is always, <laughs> it will go into your, uh, e- ears, nose, and throat. Yes, I was, uh, I got sick before the trip, got better, was better for the trip, got sick on the trip back because the household I was in was a, a cesspool of disease. Cat was getting sick near the end. Gar, of course, is the father of small children and is therefore. So him. he's, he's basically a plague vector all by himself. Yeah, he's a, a he's, lovely plague he's vector. A very I don't want to. Charm- as a collection delightful. of bacterium, he's the most charming and talented game designer I know, but he is right. a very tall, yes. handsome bacteria, basically. Right. And, yeah. Uh, he's one enormous virus. Right. And you arrived sick as a dog and uh, i arrived with a chest cold that i'd gotten from my previous exertions threw off the chest cold just in time to fill my entire chest cavity with the aforementioned black mold so god knows what's wrong with me now but it's all of that uh blended into a stew yeah so the lesson here is we're the real heroes people <laughs> right uh so yes we were uh in london for dragon meat uh, and, uh, hence our travel advisory. So Dragon Meat is getting bigger and bigger and, uh, its new, uh, digs continue to, at the, uh, Novotel and Hammersmith continue to make room for more people to come in. Uh, 
So, for example, Pelgrain uh, did better at their stand this year than last, even though last year they had a big new product to sell 50 copies of. So uh, that uh, obviously right there tells us that the attendance uh, continued to grow. There were a bunch of uh, people who we were delighted to meet who were there uh, for the first time to uh, uh, hear, hear us do our live episode, which will drop next week. And uh, uh, it was uh, delightful to meet uh, new people and see uh, new folks coming to the convention. A couple of people said this was their first game con ever. So I think that really uh, speaks to the continued a growth of our beloved hobby. Yeah, uh, the the two lobes exist not just in America, but also I assume everywhere that the tendrils of Twitch and YouTube can reach. And we had again um, the British GameCon attendee has sort of a very definite profile, and we saw people who were departing from that profile a little more signally than we have previously, which was uh, very delightful. So. Um, the, the the crowd was a good mix of, of old friends who come by and touch everything uh, in excitement every year and new people, some of whom were ridiculously shy and would come up and say, oh, I've I've liked you guys. And I I hope you don't mind if I if I just am happy to meet you. And it's like, no, of course not. That's delightful. That's literally why we crossed the Atlantic in the grip of life threatening disease in order to, to, to do this is because we like to meet the people and, and, and uh, hopefully gave none of them a life threatening disease. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. Yeah. You never get a disease from your heroes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The, the statement, never meet your heroes is not uh, referred to contagion. Yeah, it's not an epidemiological statement. It's more of a moral statement. In other getting thwarted news, uh, we had planned to go to the uh, Magical Manuscripts show at the British Library, or as they're calling it, Harry Potter something or other. Yeah, Harry Potter and the stupid waste of a, <laughs> of a description. Right. But we, uh, but because of the Harry Potter thing, uh, it was sold out. Uh, when I yeah. looked it up earlier in the month, it said, uh, good availability on weekdays, but I guess I should have bought my tickets right then and there. So next year, we will know uh, to buy our tickets to whatever our planned show is in earlier before we uh, had there. We, uh, we were also thwarted, by the way. Uh, the Petri uh, Museum of Egyptology had a exhibit, and I, I, I saw this and I thought of you, our beloved listeners, immediately, where you go around and look at and handle and touch cursed objects from all eras of ancient Egypt, and then at the end, a curse is placed upon you by a, uh, what what was it called, a seasoned enchantress? Was that what they yes, said? I, it was, yes, uh, and And so, and and there was like a little health warning that, you know, uh, visitors who believe they're exceptionally susceptible to curses should not attend. It was like the spirit of William Castle had come alive and was running an exhibit at the, at the Petri. But they're dark but it turns on out Mondays. They're dark on Mondays. That That's when real Egyptologists come and don't want to mess with a bunch of nonsense people. <laughs> and so um, we, we felt very bad that we were not able to take on a curse. Although given how we sound now, who knows? Maybe it was our, it was our lighthearted, not caring about taking on a curse that cursed us? Could that be a thing? I don't know. Uh, and don't know. Uh, if it's an Egyptian enchantress, do you season her with turmeric? Is that the season um, you use? I, 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 th I think uh, it, this is ancient Egypt, so you would use uh, niter. Right. Right? Yeah. Possibly toss in some myrrh. You never know. If you have that lying around, it, it's the season to have myrrh lying around. It is. This is the myrrh season. So in, uh, instead, uh, we wound up going to... It's the uh, cold flu and myrrh season. <laughs> yeah. uh, we wound up going to... Uh, an incredible Medigliani show at the Tate Modern. Uh, and I guess it was at the Tate uh, Modern instead of their regular Tate because they had room for it there. And uh, <laughs> it was really a, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to see most of his work all together in one place. 
and so uh, Amadeo Medigliani, uh, you um, might want to fire up your Googles, and if the uh, style of his art is not immediately coming to mind, he is noted for his uh, portraiture. Uh, he worked from basically the first uh, three uh, or I guess two decades, decade and a half really, of the 20th century. Yeah. He, um, he, uh, he died young uh, back when, uh, just like H.P. Lovecraft, uh, people in the first world uh, regularly died of being uh, hungry and damp and sick. <laughs> Instead of doing podcasts. Instead of doing podcasts. <laughs> uh, well, in that condition. Yes. Well, if, if we die, people, you're, you're allowed to quit our Patreon. Unless that Egyptian curse was more powerful than we think. So, uh, bring to mind, uh, his, uh, style of portraiture, which, uh, features, uh, a very sort of graphic spare style, uh, sort of elongated swan-like necks, both on men and women. The, uh, men often have sort of, uh, pursed lips. His early very graphic style is almost sort of cartoony in the way that it uses a line drawing style for the outlines of the, uh, figure in the uh, clothing uh, to make the colors pop. Yes, and uh, he rarely uh, shows the uh, eyes of the uh, figure that he's painting. Often, uh, there'll just sort of be a, a blue darkness where the uh, I guess I guess it's supposed to be closed eyelids, or sometimes there's cross hatching. Yeah, and then it's sort of well. There's one. There's one uh, portrait that we saw where one of the sitters was painted with one closed eye and one open eye and you literally couldn't tell which one was which except i suppose the one that's sort of fuzzier must be the closed eye there is because there was actually a an iris in that in one of the eyes oh, but right. it's very right. dark yeah. because both of them yeah. are painted over and so the right. effect of that is to kind of take you away from the idea that the sitter is looking at you and engaging with you but rather force you to look at them less as a person in an emotional moment as this is a radical refiguring of what the human shoulders and neck and head look like. And there are many sitters who you see multiple times who you see are similar from painting to painting. So he is capturing something yeah, about that. Some individuality of the person. Right. But it's more like he's turning the person. You said earlier that it's a, almost a cartoony style that if you think of it, he's sort of turning the person into an icon in like almost the artistic sense, there's a similarity there to, um, it looks like Byzantine art, but what it is actually is, uh, because Modigliani was so very influenced by Egyptian art and African art that it's those influences that went into the Byzantine art that created the similarity to the icon that you are familiar with from Eastern Orthodox art. But the, but that sort of iconic presentation of the human face and to a lesser extent, the human body is, is something that I think he, he sort of latched onto instinctively early and then really, uh, worked on for the, well, really for the rest of his life, sadly. Right. The, his, uh, f friends and his art dealer and the people around him are the focus of this sort of, uh, you know, they are secular icons and that's actually a really great visual point to make, uh, I guess this is where I briefly go into my uh, sometimes lengthier rant about the, the, the Tate Modern, uh, which is that the signage and descriptions throughout the place and in this uh, exhibit as well uh, are always very much about the literary meaning of the paintings, uh, often the political meaning and context of the work, and sometimes just about the biographical life story of the person. But almost never about the actual <laughs> visual description about the actual process of making and looking at art about art as a visual medium. And you've just gotten from us more description 
of Medigliani style than you will find on the placards in the exhibit. Uh, it's uh, about his life and, uh, you know, when he gets to the point where he's uh, painting uh, nudes, it tells you that, you know, it tells you how much the women posing for them got compared to how much he got, which is a Compared to the average salary of a working woman of the time. Yes. Apparently a pretty tight ratio, so good for you, Medigliani, but that sort of social context is very important to them. The fact that art is visual, eh, not so much. Um, eh, whatever. Speaking of visuals, uh, they uh, gave us an opportunity to experience the bleeding edge of VR. Uh, they <laughs> they have a, a room that you can go into in order to experience the uh, damp garret that he died in just before he died in it. And uh, they even have a little, they have vents to blow wind onto your leg. Uh, and, uh, hey, the VR get made me sick, Ken. That's <laughs> what it is. It's a VR. I got to Medigliani's uh, croup. And so uh, what what we learned from this is that VR, uh, which is the way they're very pitching this hard, is a big, cutting-edge, amazing experience you're going to have. They're good at dust motes in the sunlight yep. and uh, cigarette smoke. And the rest of it, you felt you were sitting in what, like a Tex Avery version of somebody's yeah, it was, it was, it was like a, a cut scene, but not from a good video game from one of those that's like $9 on steam. And is about the concept, not about, you know, uh, the visuals. It, it was really terrible. Um, it, it, it was. It, it was not even like you, a Medigliani painted Medigliani Garrett, which would at least be clever. It was just like a really garbagey, um, you know, it, like one of the early Simpsons when he goes into the, into the three dimensional world, that kind of level of, of, of ridiculously not good. Um, it was just, uh, it was, it was weird that, you know, they would be pushing it this hard and then you sit down and it's, you know, the, 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 the Garrett is, is located in the uncanny valley, which I guess, is, you know, it's desirable real estate in Paris, sure, but it, it doesn't do an awful lot for the Tate Modern or for VR, really. Yeah, if you had spent that money to actually build a replica of the Garrett, that would have been much more of an experience than, yes. uh, than this weirdo situation. Or if, or if maybe, you know, got another couple of Modigliani heads. Uh, right. So, uh, as his career goes along, uh, one of the other big chunks of it is uh, he started uh, painting nudes at the behest of his dealer because guess what those are what sold um and those are interesting in that the uh the women in these paintings suddenly have eyes and they are looking at you uh and they're not necessarily come hither stairs it actually captures the real sort of awkwardness or distrust or tolerant impatience tolerant impatience that the actual sitters would have really had and so that uh lends them an interesting sort of uh, paradoxical quality uh, perhaps beyond what the uh, people who b- buying them were, were looking for. I, I just like the notion of someone who's out buying a nude for their own uh, nefarious Paris bachelor purposes. And they, and they say, I think I want a Modigliani nude because I'm obviously very badly damaged in some way. <laughs> well, you, you, I think you were showing off your, uh, your bohemian uh, uh, cred, cred there, right? Because yeah, at the time these were still considered obscene. And yeah. uh, some of them had to be put up, put away. He had one e- exhibit during his life and they had to take the nudes down when the uh, prefect of police came around. Yep. Because the ladies were too realistic, which is a terrifying thought. Yeah. The, uh, th- another good bit of it was we got to see his portraits of some of his other 
friends who later become famous. Like he has a, he has a portrait of Picasso that he paints in just a little bit of a cubist style, not full cubist, but just, just let you know that he's doing Picasso with a little bit of Picasso to him. It's still a Modigliani, but it, but it's very fun in that way. Uh, a lot of other uh, folks from that era. There's a Cocteau. Uh, and with it is a quote from Cocteau, who afterwards uh, said that uh, the painting doesn't look like me, but does look like Medigliani, which is better. But the thing yeah. is, of all the paintings of all the people who I recognize, that really looks like Cocteau in that period. It actually does capture his character because you can see this is young Cocteau in particular, and he looks like he's a bit of a flippity gibbet, which everybody but Cocteau thought he was, especially at that time. And so even though it's in one level a very uh, cartoony image of him, it does capture uh, his character, and it's uh, uh, fabulous that Cocteau, who was also an art critic, made that great general point about Medigliani, but that it was also not quite correct in his own right. case. And so now that we're talking about Picasso and Cocteau, who we both know a little later on become dream hands of Paris, I guess it's time to start Ken and Robining up the story of Amadeo Medigliani. And so uh, you've already touched on that a bit in that he is one of the people who uses uh, ancient Egyptian and also African art as an inspiration to unlock modernism and escape the clutches of pure representation. Yeah, he um, he spent the years from, say, 1907 to about 1911 very much obsessed with Egyptian art. There was a picture of one of his uh, mistresses that was on the wall, and she's drawn in a uh, like a Cleopatra-esque or Nefertiti-esque sort of a costume. And uh, the accompanying placard, while re resolutely ignoring what the art looks like, does tell us that he told uh, the, the the woman who was a Russian poetess um, that uh, the he would take her down to the to the galleries at uh, the uh, Museum of Art in Paris, I guess the Louvre, and he would he would only go to the Egyptian art. He would say, "This is everything. Everything else is nothing." And it's about the same time that he starts uh, carving uh, 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 heads, which have these sort of weirdly elongated noses, weirdly elongated skulls, uh, very much uh, in the style of African art, but also in the style you can uh, squint and uh, and see it of uh, Southeast Asian and Southeast uh, and even Pacific art, which you would have seen as well because Cambodian art was being displayed as was Tahitian art in the galleries in Paris. So he's sort of coming up with this Ur uh, head form, uh, which uh, if you did not know it was Migliani and did not know where it came from, might also look like H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's head a little bit, or like uh, the head of some long-headed alien, maybe a gray or something like that. But he goes into this very intense period of making these uh, heads. He was living above a movie theater in 1907, so uh, the very beginning of movies is they're capturing these images out of nothingness and pulling, the, reifying them, uh, or having some uh, impact stirring around in his head, uh, uh, driving him the direction that he is driven. Um, and uh, he does a lot of designs for caryatids, who are the supporting uh, female sculptural elements uh, for what he called at the time a temple, but apparently never finished, not even in VR. Uh, and so this is the period of Paris in between the other two per periods that I've uh, yeah. researched and uh, written or, or am writing about. Our, our poor friend from Helsinki is saying, oh my God, more Paris. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah, as you point, point out, this is a transitional period. The Moulin Rouge is still a thing, but there are movie theaters and uh, uh, the uh, sort of crazy ferment that is uh, about to uh, lead to, uh, I guess, Dada is beginning in the final years of Medigliana's yeah. life and uh, 
uh, surrealism is going to uh, pick up. Well, I mean, Alfred Jerry is basically a contemporary of his. They're, yep. they're both working right now in 1911, 1912. Um, but uh, all that stuff is going to uh, hit Paris a couple of years after his uh, death and change the whole scene there. Uh, but uh, there's still, uh, I think, uh, lots of uh, grist if you uh, either send your Yellow King characters uh, ahead in time a bit, or, uh, you know, a flashback sequence sends your Dreamhounds of Paris uh, characters uh, back in time a bit to uh, find that, find out what uh, really doomed uh, poor Medigliani. And uh, before we uh, doom this podcast, uh, we better give ourselves a nice uh, healthy shot of commercial message and then head on over to whatever lies beyond it. Have you, as an avid Canon Robin listener, inexplicably failed to fill your hard drive with Dracula dossier? Never fear, for until December 27th, the epic Knights Black Agents campaign by Canon Garrett Ryder Hanrahan is now in the bundle of holding, at an unbelievably low price. A price so low, it can't see itself in the mirror. Get the bargain price player's collection to score PDFs of Dracula Unredacted, the Edom Field Manual, and the complete Knights Black Agents core book. How did Pelgrane ever allow that? Pay more than the average price to get every blood-drenched, wheel-squealing Dracula dossier product. $119 retail value for like 75% off? 10% of your payment goes to the charity chosen by Pelgrane Press, V-Day, a global activist movement to end violence against women and girls. But move fast, because a couple of days after Christmas, this deal's enemies will find its safe house and take it out for good. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us now into this FM radio at night version of the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, in addition to the weirdly um, uh, late-night DJ voice of your host, you also have another mystery. Not just why does Ken sound like that, but... What is Peter Frampton up to, and who stole all the and Doritos? I think this week it's, it's Tom Waits. Tom Waits. More of a Tom, <laughs> Waits. Tom Waits. Tom Waits is gazing down yes. at us. Uh, and, and perhaps not coming alive so much as in the process of dying of tuberculosis. Right. Uh, but uh, the, the question at the heart of the gaming hut today is the question at the heart of the mystery, which is how does the mystery look? Which is to say, what is its formal quality? What is its shape? What is its design to be like? And Robin, you have strong and serious thoughts about how mystery structures should be structured. So why don't you give my poor throat a rest? Right. So, uh, Gumshoe uh, shows you how to construct mysteries if you are constructing them ahead of time by presenting uh, a uh, by sort of breaking down a, a story into scenes and then also noting what those scenes are and how they relate to one another. So uh, the obvious scenes that you start with in any story are the introduction and the conclusion. In the case of a mystery, the introduction is the sequence that finds the PCs finding the question that they need to solve. And so that's the one where your uncle brings you a mysterious package and asks you to figure out who mailed them a manuscript, or you learn that someone has been killed and you need to find out who killed them, or you pick up rumors of, you know, mysterious howlings out on the moors and you want to go check those out because, you know, you never want to, you never want 
howling on the moors without knowing who's doing the howling. It's very important to distinguish those things. So, you know, or who stole the magic gem or whatever it is. The climax, obviously, is either the you finding the solution to the mystery or you dealing with the uh, disordered situation that arises from whatever uh, brought about the mystery. So that might be simply that you, you know, reveal that it was Colonel Mustard in the parlor with a lead pipe, or you've uh, discovered that a monster has been unleashed. Oh, a monster did it. Oh, well, what do we do now? Oh, we got to kill the monster. Now, that's the easy part. But in between, what do you get? You get a different uh, series of scenes that lead you, propel the characters further into the uh, the mystery. And that is one of the two narratives in a mystery story. Uh, often the narratives run both ways. So there's a series of events that happened in the past that then lead to that moment of the introduction. And then it's those events that the main characters moving forward in time are working to uncover and understand and be able to reconstruct. And the way that they learn how to do that is by going from scene to scene, accumulating information. In Gumshoe, we present a structure to allow you to easily do this. This is not the only way to structure a mystery, because guess what? Later on in the segment, Ken's going to tell us about another one. But it is a way that will always work for you if you use it. So the main scene type is the what we call the core scene, and that is a scene that contains a piece of information that shows you how to move on further into the mystery, either toward another person to talk to, a place to investigate, research to conduct, and possibly other variants as well. But those are the big three. Uh, Gumshoe also has alternate scenes. Those are scenes where you can go to get information that may lead you back into other core scenes, but that you don't need to uh, get in order to solve the mystery. And so what that implies is that those core clues should repeat at different instances uh, through this maze that you're moving through. And what that means is that it's because if there's only a way to go from A to B to C to D to E to F, that is a linear scenario, one in which the choices of the uh, players don't matter very much. But if you can go from A to D and over to J and then back to C and then, uh, you know, skip H but end up in J, that means that the players get to choose sometimes which of multiple leads that they have found that are available to them that they can then go and pursue. And just the choice alone is enough to give the feeling of agency that I think will satisfy most players. But if you can, for extra points, uh, you can try to arrange things so that those choices have consequences that reverberate further into the narrative. So if you decide to go uh, and talk to Wingate uh, right away, uh, he's still alive. But if you wait a while, he'll be dead and you're investigating a different scene. And so uh, and that's a choice that, for example, appears in one of the follow up adventures uh, that we're releasing in PDF for uh, Cthulhu Confidential. Uh, there are also antagonist reaction scenes. Those are scenes where the whatever forces were responsible for uh, creating the mystery decide they don't want you poking into them or just random people you've annoyed come after you and, and become an obstacle uh, to your effort. And that uh, makes the uh, solution of the mystery that introduces variation and suspense and, and danger. But eventually you wind up in that climactic scene that I've already described, where you uh, either figure out what's going on and that's the end of it, or you figure out what's going on and do something about it. Now, uh, Ken, for the advanced scenario writer, uh, you have a another really uh, interesting and uh, rich approach, and it is called the ocean of clues. So how does the ocean 
vary from the maze. Okay, the ocean of clues, uh, I suppose, is best thought of um, geographically in that there are uh, regions within the ocean. You can call them seas or lakes or, or bays or gulfs or whatever. And in those regions, which might be... Could they be islands? Uh, they could be islands, but then the metaphor breaks down, uh, which might be the, the manor house, or it might be uh, the demi-monde of Berlin, or it might be uh, the British Museum, or it might, you know, be uh, uh, any sort of, of, of place, but it is a place where there are uh, more clues than there are other places. And those are places where you can think of the ecology of clues is particularly rich. Um, those clues are... Uh, magnetized, if you will, to vary the metaphor a bit, uh, towards the solution of the mystery. So every time you go into the demimond of Berlin and you talk to people, they know something about the, uh, about the get bad guy who, who killed your uncle, or they know something about the stolen gem, or they know something about the howling on the moors, because that event has created ripples that are affecting everyone in the, in the area. And this is a good approach to use when you, uh, when the adventure is somewhat about solving a mystery, but is also about exploring a milieu, which is the case with a lot of historical uh, adventures of the sort that I write for Paul Grain. So if I really want to talk about Vienna in 1948, I write the Carmilla Sanction, which is a classic ocean of clues adventure, because there really aren't scenes qua scenes. What there are are uh, social locations in Vienna where you go and you talk to NPCs who have information or you uncover evidence, uh, like the, um, uh, uh, the Soviet archives in Berlin, where you uncover evidence that points to a certain place, but there's not a scene where you go to the archives and you talk to the archivist and the archivist does or doesn't give you the information, or you hunt through the archives and you find the information. The, 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 uh, the scene is we're in the commandatura, the central area in, in Vienna where people are, uh, are keeping all the archives, which archives do you want to go to? What are the difficulties there? What are the obstacles specifically for the Soviets, Americans, French, and British? What do those specific locations offer in terms of information? But the information is just floating around in this, uh, in the, in the, in the like chum in the waters and, uh, activating the story and pointing towards more solutions. And, uh, eventually you develop almost an impressionistic understanding of what's going on, which you then confirm by means of the core clues you've already gathered. And, uh, the core clues that you gather over this process, eventually uh, they resolve down to the same sorts of core clues that you do in the maze, the who, where, what, how, that kind of thing. But those information has emerged by the player characters talking to people and putting the, the bits together as opposed to a, a scene that they, they find a matchbook and it leads them to a nightclub and that the nightclub they talk to the singer and she points them to her sister and the sister points to the uh, leading werewolf expert who she's been dating but who's been acting weird and the, oh my goodness we discovered the answer and so you still have you can still have all of those things in it but they will be magnetized to point towards the solution by giving you information that eventually you build up and create uh, an image of the solution. Now, this is a much harder thing to write. It takes more time and it should only be done if the milieu can withstand it. Don't do it for an area either that you don't have any research information on or that it's just fundamentally small or isolated or boring. So you couldn't do it for like maybe a individual uh, manor house 
there you'd probably just want to do a, a standard maze of clues. Um, but if it's the Cliveden set, uh, conspiring to bring, uh, Britain out of World War II, uh, yeah, maybe that's a maze of clues type situation and you need to, uh, be able to talk to a bunch of different dukes and you don't have a, an individual, uh, location to go to meet them at. You just need to be able to make contacts and pursue those contacts whichever way the story logic seems to lead you. Right. Because actually, the mystery has the same structure in both of these. Right. The scenario presentation is structured differently. So the scenario, the thing that you're reading before you run it, has a different structure. The thing that you come out with on the other end has the same structure, but the difference being that the uh, maze of clues, I guess maybe we really want to call that a maze of scenes, maybe. Uh, right. It presents the scenes to you uh, in a fairly developed fashion, whereas the ocean... Uh, has seen hooks that you then improvise into scenes when the players head to that area of the text. Um, and so you could, after a Ocean of Clues-based uh, game run, then map it out as if it were the uh, maze of scenes. Uh, what you wouldn't have is all the alternate scenes uh, because you didn't do those scenes. They you didn't were do that, alternate right. choices they didn't make. Yeah. I guess you could, like, you know, put in, you know, chunks of if there's a, you know, a, a section of on Belgravia and the things that are going on there and they didn't get there, you could put that on your map as something you didn't get to. But since you wouldn't even make this map in the first place, <laughs> yeah, you also would never do that, um, except maybe as a as an exercise uh, later, you know, 10 years from now, when there are a bunch of graduate studies courses in um, Role playing, then you may have to do that when you become, when you go for your PhD in role playing. Right. Um, so anyway, I think we've, uh, uh basically laid out the, the difference in two approaches and they're just, uh, they, uh, work. I think, uh, they have, uh, both have their own, um, positives and drawbacks. And the ocean of clues, as you suggest, uh, re relies very much on the fact that there's a mystery that takes you through a milieu the way that, uh, you know, a Flashman novel takes that the lead character through a section of, uh, Fraser's historical research. And that's not something that you want to use, as you suggest, for like a haunted house mystery or a, you know, could you do an ocean of clues for like Innsmouth, for example, or would you present that more in a, uh, a maze of scenes format. Well, if you look, for example, at uh, the Chaosium uh, Dunwich Guide specifically, that's a very ocean of clues book. And it uh, presents Dunwich as uh, this um, uh, area where there are an ongoing series of, of human dramas and monstrous failures. And you go to any of them and it points you towards perhaps one of the adventures that are included in the book. The adventures themselves, however, are relatively straightforward maze of clues uh, type stories. So you could present Innsmouth if you wanted to as an ocean, but you could also run a perfectly satisfying maze of clues adventure through it. And again, if you look at uh, the Chaosium Innsmouth book, the climax, the battle for Innsmouth is very much a ocean of clues type story because you are literally jump cutting between five or six scenes with no connection whatsoever and all of you fighting your way to the central mystery. Whereas in the scenarios at the beginning, uh, there's one that basically replicates the story and that's a classic maze that's your olmstead you get to the town this thing happens to you then this thing then this thing you could go here or here uh you wind up around here you discover you talk to zadok who's your core clue dumpster and then you flee uh and, and that's a very mazy structure and it's the one obviously that lovecraft used so you can't knock that right and one thing that may affect your choice is just how 
proactive your players are. If you have players that, as soon as they sense a plot, go off somewhere else, uh, <laughs> you want to pull out your uh, your Ocean of Clues uh, structured scenario. If you have players who like to be pointed in a direction and then go in that direction, um, who need a bit of nudging in order to, uh, otherwise they're just going to discuss all night what, what to do, the more structured uh maze of scenes format may be the, the one that uh, works for you. Um, and once we're uh, recommending which one you should... Oh, sorry, one other point before I head toward that commercial, yeah. uh, which is, uh, we've already sort of suggested this, but need to make it explicit. This is a system-independent observation that you can run uh, a uh, Ocean of Clues or Maze of Scenes-based uh, scenario in any system that allows for investigation. So you could do it in uh, in classic Call of Cthulhu, you can do it in F20, you could do it in Traveler. It doesn't have to be Gumshoe, although, of course, Gumshoe developed this more and thought about it more uh, because that's Gumshoe's main thing. Yeah, because Gumshoe is optimized to make mystery stories happen. So, obviously, uh, it thinks a little harder about mystery structures. Right, and speaking of structures, the structure of this show is that there's a commercial that we have to get go through to get the core clue that will enable us to find out what the segment is that lies beyond it. Today, Swedish role-playing games are celebrated all over the world, with multiple titles being translated into English and other languages. Tofa Gilbring of Askfageln has been a champion for Swedish role-playing games for three decades. Together with her husband Anders, they have published and developed games, gaming magazines, and hosted gaming events at conventions all over Sweden. But now Tova's breast cancer is back, and Anders has organized a crowdfunding campaign to buy her time. Time to make the rest of her life about more than surviving. Time to devote herself to what she loves, the creation and publication of new gaming titles. Titles like additional volumes in the Best of Phoenix series. The Choose Your Own Adventure book, Writer of the Black Sun, by Sven Harder. Second comic strip album of Ake Brazinius's Burger Barbaren. And Asa Rusu's cool keyring RPG in an English edition. The full game compact enough to fit on a keyring. And of course, a multitude of scenarios, source books, and choose your own adventures for Western, their Wild West role-playing dream project. Add some boom to Tova's ultimate blast of creative fireworks. Go to Kickstarter and search Love Tova. L-O-V-E-T-O-V-E. Or follow the link in the show notes. Prevent this podcast from dying of tuberculosis in a damp Parisian garret by joining such Patreon backers as... Adam Grotjohn. Patrick Joint. Andrew M. Reichart. Aaron Sapp. And Corey Welch. So, Ken, amid the heroic uh, actions that you undertook in London while suffering from the uh, Lurgy, you realized that the British economy, battered by uh, the winds of Brexit, has a bit of a lurgy itself. There was some coughing and sputtering. You decided to flush some lovely American dollars into the economy because you went at your London book hall hard this year. Just call me the Marshall Plan, my friend. <laughs> yes. Plan. Marshall Plan. And so uh, 
you uh, hit Treadwells even harder than usual because things that in previous years, uh, I know that you would have run your fingers over and gone, oh, if only this was a used copy and a new copy. This year, new copies of, of things were leaping into your hands and uh, hoping to be rescued and carried across the Atlantic to receive a loving home. And uh, first among these is the game of Saturn, decoding the Sola Busca Toroki by Peter Mark Adams. And this is a, a beautiful, colorful, shrink-wrapped uh, titan of a book that, uh, thanks to the falling pound, is now yours. Yes, it is, Robin, with the exception that it is, of course, no longer shrink-wrapped. Um, <laughs> this uh, book purports to uh, solve the code of the uh, Sola Buscatero towards the uh, revealing the existence of a pagan liturgy and ritual hidden within the tarot. The Solabuska is the earliest uh, tarot deck uh, known by and large. It's, it's roughly contemporaneous with the Visconti Sforza. It's slightly off uh, the standard um, uh, uh, tarots. It is the one that is, for example, referenced in Tim Powers' magisterial tarot novel, Last Call. So if you are last call woke or Tim Powers woke, perhaps the game of Saturn is something you should snap up. Um, and man, it is gorgeous. I mean, it's just a beautiful book by and large. It, it, re, it, uh, duplicates the, uh, Sola Buscatero in, in a lovely fashion. I, of course, have the Sola Buscatero in a boxed set, but my, my current Sola Busca is not as nice as this Sola Busca. So it's a lovely book, um, just in terms of tarot history, but it also, uh, looks like it ties in all manner of good things, uh, as well. It, it, it's like all good occultism. It combines historical, actual stuff with crazy talk. Uh, so it, it, if you look at, for example, the, um, uh, the court cards, um, they are, uh, sourced directly, as the author points out, from the Alexander Romance, which is information I already didn't have, uh, but is actually true. And then, if they're going to decide that this is actually a ritual to Zeus Ammon, that would be the crazy thing. And that would be the other half of the value. But yeah, the game of Saturn, it's a lovely thing. They had a, a an accompanying Sola Busca that you could buy there. But like I say, I already have a Sola Busca, so I didn't need one. Now, whereas uh, your other book raids that you conduct without my assistance, uh, you dutifully type up all the names and titles. Uh, for London, I do the lazy man thing and just photograph the copy of all of the covers. This system breaks down a bit. Uh, when we come to a particularly gorgeous and enticing volume that uh, knows the secrets of the Hawkins papers. And on the outside, there's just a, a sort of a sepia, uh, duo-toned picture of a house. And there's a paper, a banner, a paper, a wrapper across it that says, do not buy this book. Nothing good will come from reading it. And that's a quote from an Amazon UK review. Uh, Ken, you bought that book. I did buy that did book. Did anything good come from it? If you slipped that well, wrapper off, what what is this mysterious tome? This mysterious tome, and as you say, it it knows the wisdom of the Hawkins papers. It comes with handouts. This mysterious tome does. Yeah. Uh, so there's uh, replica postcards and little images of people. Uh, the book itself, before we get too far out of our weeds, uh, is called Netherwood, and it is about uh, the house in Hastings where the lovely and talented Alistair Crowley died. Um, so it's Netherwood, the last resort of Alistair Crowley, written by a gentleman of Hastings, but it is signed Anthony Clayton in my copy, which is copy 184 <laughs> of 500 
a limited edition. Oh, this is a rarity. This is a rarity, and I don't buy books, as you know, based on rarity. I um, uh, am too jambless a person to be a bibliophile in that sense. I buy them for the content. Right. Well, if you had valuable books in your library, that would just be another reason for people to come and kill you. So you exactly. Don't but this book, for example, has a a floor plan of the house in which Aleister Crowley died. And I ask you, can I not buy a book with the floor plan of the house where Aleister Crowley died? I think not. Um, and it has a little envelope, as you suggest, with uh, which contains a series of postcards and photographs. So uh, it is definitely designed to tweak the desires of, of our tribe. Oh, yeah. It, 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 I don't even know if there's a regular published version of it. But if you can find a copy of Netherwood by a gentleman of Hastings who may or may not be named Anthony Clayton, I recommend uh, running your fingers over it lovingly, uh, at the very least. And if you have an interest in running an adventure in this uh, apparently haunt of uh, the louche and the disturbing, in addition to uh, the the Great Beast, uh, other weirdos stayed there for some period of time. So it is uh, well worth... Uh, looking at that, and uh, I would—I always thought that he just sort of died in a boring beach house that no one cared anything about, uh, because bore, no one he, cared anything. He died in a place called Netherwood. He died in a place called Netherwood, and there's all manner of exciting things going on. There's a lot of pictures from the fall of the House of Usher for some reason, which now I'm now I'm kind of super excited. I'm wondering if maybe people involved in that movie also stayed there, or they filmed it in the area, or something like that. But I mean, if we can tie Aleister Crowley in the fall of the House of Usher. I'm going to be the happiest boy at camp. Well, you know, if a Patreon backer asks, you might uh, read yeah. further into the book and, uh, you know, turn it into a whole segment. We we might be able to tell them more. I, I don't want to tell people what to ask, but that is a no, thing no, that, they could that's ask. That's not something we should do. It is something you could ask, though, yeah. Uh, next up, uh, we have uh, Ronald Hutton, The Witch, A History of Fear from Ancient Times to the Present. Ronald Hutton is on my buy-on-site list. Uh, for new books by him ever since I read his history of the uh, modern witchcraft religion, modern neo-paganism, uh, the triumph of the moon, which I bought uh, thinking, Oh, a scholarly study of neo-paganism. I will put this with my other studies of neo-paganism and began thumbing through the index. saw I think Arthur Mackin appeared in the index, went to read him on Arthur Mackin and sat up the next morning, realizing I'd read about two thirds of the book, just going jumping around topic to topic through the index, much less reading the book. So Hutton at that point jumped right up to the very front of my list. He has another excellent book called stations of the sun, where he takes the entire calendar year and goes as far back. So we, we hear about the four corners of the year and the eightfold year and all this blither blather. And he goes and says, all right, how far can we actually trace summer solstice observations in history? And, oh, it's not that far, but we have these summer solstice alignments and things. Maybe there was a summer. We don't know. Maybe there was. Maybe there wasn't. And he sort of just drills down and provides a genuine historical approach to things that people have just sort of bibble babbled their way through. He has another book on King Arthur that does the same thing. Uh, this book is about the image of the witch and um, uh, how witches are seen not just in good old uh, uh, England, but also globally. So the Africans, uh, uh, African cultures are very big into not liking witches. And he's going to talk about how that looks. Uh, this is a, uh, a major cultural history by a great cultural historian hopes that he will uh, maintain his scholarly and skeptical rigor while also, and this is the great thing he doesn't, he's not mad at anyone who uh, believes things he's, he's in his history of the, uh, of Wicca. He goes out of his way to say 
Um, this is not about the, the spiritual precepts of that faith. They're as, they're as legitimate and noble as, as any, um, uh, world religion. This is about the historical, uh, antecedents of the faith and what caused it to happen. And he's very, uh, respectful and he, and he's, and he enjoys the sort of the legends that people make up about stuff, even if he must uh, re- regrettably demonstrate that they're based on a farrago of Victorian nonsense. And he is a, uh, he's a great writer and a great thinker. And I have, uh, only touched, I only had to touch the witch and, uh, uh, confirm that it was released this year to know that it would be mine. And it is. Uh, so next up, we have. The Mystery of Spring-Heeled Jack by John Matthews, and the uh, subtitle is From Victorian Legend to Steampunk Hero. So I gather this is a, uh, a sort of a cultural history of Spring-Heeled Jack? Yeah, it's a cultural history. It includes some of the later sightings of Spring-Heeled Jack that are not canonical. There is an astonishing, excellent, wonderful, uh, lengthy uh, article by uh, Mike Dash on Spring-Heeled Jack, um, uh, in Fortean studies, uh, it came about, uh, came about, I think, uh, 20 or 30 years ago. And that is all the facts that you can possibly have about spring Jack. But, um, if, uh, Ronald Hutton is one kind of author, John Matthews is another kind of author. Uh, John Matthews <laughs> never met a, a goofy belief that he did not unfold to his capacious bosom. Um, he likes all the UFOs. He likes all the witches. He likes all the King Arthurs. He is a, um, uh, a new age author. So this is ex- a, not uh, a cultural history so much as a believer's history. This is a believer's cultural history. I suspect it will attempt to come back around to being a cultural history, but he will be just so excited, uh, to have, uh, been talking about spring Jack that perhaps, there will be a little more of the intrusion of the author than we like. It'll still have lots of good stuff about Spring Hill Jack, and it will hopefully mention his current career as a character in mediocre uh, steampunk fiction. <laughs> it promises to do so. It, it does promise to do so. And if you looked at the back cover, you would notice... Oh, look at those tiny little margins. Look at those tiny little margins. If the name John Matthews did not already tell you what you were getting, the tiny little margins did it. But it's a spring Jack book. It was very reasonably priced. As I mentioned previously, the pound is weak and crawling to me. Um, and weirdly, uh, you, you want to know the weirdest fact about uh, spring Jack? Tell me. Tell me the weirdest fact. We've still not done a segment on him. We haven't. So, no, again, I don't want to push anybody but just as an idle observation it's someone that our patreon backers could ask about it they could they could theoretically they could ask can happen so many things no. so many things magic and magicians in the greco-roman world by matthew w dickey uh this is mostly uh well it's mostly because it's called magic and magicians of the greco-roman world for god's sake but it does have but it does have a chapter on uh the sorcerers in the hellenistic period uh which uh newsflash is when i'm running my 13th age game and guess what i've got magic characters so it'd be fun to have some historically authentic sorcerers show up and sorcerer these guys uh so um that's just why i bought it now as opposed to later uh but it is we laugh um, at your fireball we're going to perform an augury at you we're going to uh find out what uh what you're going to die of and then make it happen um the uh this is you know one of the sort of standard grown-up people histories it's from rutledge for gosh sakes um it goes back to the sources and uh, extrapolates very gingerly from them just like you like and what he does is he's basically making the argument that 
uh, just like in every other urban culture that we've ever had sorcery, meaning, uh, uh, guys who practice off the books witchcraft, um, but do it with uh, a scholarly, uh, cover are big. And although there is not a belief because people like to paint the Greeks as this ultra rational, uh, uh, society and the Romans as this ultra pragmatic society, people are like, how could there have been sorcerers? They were, you know, building all these lovely uh, white column buildings. Uh, turns out, yeah, everyone's got crazy people and the Greeks and Romans, no doubt, uh, the Romans especially were in the grip of superstition as a, as a, as a culture. It, it's just amazing when you drill down and discover all the weird crap that they believed. So, uh, the Romans will be less of a surprise to me, yeah. but I will be very entertained by the Greek sorcerers. The, the Enlightenment, uh, pick particular things things about those cultures to try to bring back. <laughs> and uh, so next up, we come to uh, one that I think tre- Treadwell's, and, and I'm surprised there isn't like a little uh, trumpet that goes off when you come in the door. Uh, Treadwell sold two copies of this, one to you and one to Cat. It's The Spine of Albion, uh, and that's written by Gary Biltcliffe and Carolyn Hoare. And there's uh, uh, cool dragons and uh, fighting and intertwining, and there's a Looks like a swan up on top of this, so this has got to be some good stuff. This is some good stuff. This is about a ley line, my friend. And as you know, and as we all know, ley lines are where the magic happens. This is called the Bellinus line, and it runs from the Isle of Wight all the way to Durness in Scotland. And as so often happens when you draw a straight line of uh, uh, the proper thickness across a small enough scale <laughs> map of Britain. Across a relatively narrow place that's perpendicular it it passes through all kinds of weirdness magic and history because guess what all of britain is full of weirdness magic history and mold and so the (laughs) uh the ability to draw a uh, line with a marker through weirdness magic and history is not perhaps the great accomplishment that gary and carolyn think it is but they produced a lovely book there's lovely maps there's uh, lovely photographs. It's full color. It's very attractive. As uh, Kat said, it's basically uh, Fearful Symmetries, the book. Fearful Symmetries being a, a fine uh, a, a Trail of Cthulhu adventure that is uh, being come out with uh, in the future by uh, Steve Dempsey, our beloved friend, um, and Alan Moore uh, symbiote. And so there will be a great deal of fun material for players of that and for people who maybe think they want to run it. They could get a jump on it by buying The Spine of Albion. I liked it because I love these sort of mystical travelogues, and there's a lot of uh, good ones. Um, it, Britain seems to have uh, spawned them in the last uh, 20 years. Uh, someone who says, hey, if you took the production design of a good travel book and the woo-woo craziness of a new age book and you combine them, you'd have a book that was better than either. And indeed, The Spine of Albion does it. It's a little more woo-woo crazy and a little less travel, but it's just, it's very nice looking. Well, the inside y- y- is very you pretty. You can find your own train schedules. You know, it's, right. it's the woo-woo that really brings it. The woo-woo is the secret. And again, if you look at the back, um, uh, they were, oh, the people at Sacred Lands Publishing, they, they tried so very, very hard to make sure that the margins were sensible people margins, but <laughs> they, they just can't help themselves. It, it crept out. It, it bloomed. It just crept, just crept a little bit out. Well, that's the ley line power for you. It'll, it'll shrink a margin like that. And then the way that you can tell is they have a picture of the, um, the, I think it's the white horse. Uh, the, 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 at Longbridge, the big, uh, the chalk figure and the big chalk figure takes up half of the top of the book. And so you can just tell that they kept having to extend that picture <laughs> to cover the whole book. It's just, oh God, I love it. I love this concept. Those, uh, those dragons, it, instead of the red and the white, they're purple and gold. 
And uh, the, that Cygnus the Swan, I'm sure, up there in the sky, because he's an important dude to your uh, geomancers. Well, so, speaking of dragons, the next book in the, in the pile is called Dragons. Uh, and that's good enough, right? You know, dragons. Right. We're in. We're interested in that. But then you get to the subtitle, The Modern Infestation by Pamela Barton Lampede. On top of everything else, we have to worry about a dragon infestation, Ken? Yep. This book is, I believe, a non-fictional fiction in that it is a book about uh, the dragon infestation that broke out into the modern world. I guess, what are we saying? Uh, I don't know. The book comes out in 1980. It's reissued in 1996. I guess the beginning of the modern infestation would be... Because, you know, I could pick just about any point in history, uh, except possibly the Jazz Age, and go, that's where the dragon started. 1967, Robin. That's June a pretty good year. June 23rd, 1967. A dragon spotted on the dairy farm of Earl J. Fulton near Marengo, Iowa. And then, the, as we all know, the dragons became a problem, and this is the book about them. So it's a cryptozoological book or maybe a you know uh a sort of a, a threat that's a real threat but is not a apocalyptic threat um it's the proceedings of the verminological congress i think is is one of the things that it pretends to be um so it's a non-fiction fiction about the dragon infestation so and uh non-fiction fiction does this mean that the author is writing fiction in a non-fiction format or that the author that's what that means okay so the author does yeah. not actually think that the dragons are coming to get us. Well, I'm not going to speak to Pamela Wharton Blanpede's mental state, but I will say that Pamela Wharton Blanpede knows well enough to write this in the terms of a straight-faced, non-fictional, even scientific study of dragons, and um, uh, complete with uh, sketches by eyewitnesses and uh, pictures and all manner of wonderful things. This is, uh, this is magnificent. It's, it's a great-looking thing. And I'm happy to own it. Next up, we come to Shakespeare and the Stars, the hidden astrological keys to understanding the world's greatest playwright by Priscilla Costello. So, uh, kids, when you're writing your uh, next term paper on Hamlet, uh, obviously this is what you want to lay on your instructor. Right. And again, um, uh, the good people at Ibis Press are making sure that we understand what kind of book this is. But if you look at the back, there will be uh, specific cases Case studies of Midsummer Night's Dream, Romeo and Juliet, Merchant of Venice, Macbeth, The Tempest, and King Lear. I, for those who do not know, spent um, every Christmas and every Valentine's Day writing a uh, piece about the occult and conspiratorial uh, themes behind uh, Shakespeare, considering the Shakespeare plays as dramaturgical spells. Um, this is yet more grist for that mill. There is a terrific book uh, called The Scythe of Saturn by Linda Woodbridge, which is a slightly less bananas version of this same theory that Shakespeare being steeped in a world, uh, as the early modern era was of magical thinking and magical symbolism, uh, put that into his plays, just like, uh, everybody else put things into their plays. So if you wrote a book about the magical world of the fairy queen, no one would blink twice, but you say the magical world of uh, the merchant of Venice, suddenly everyone's all up in arms and Linda Woodbridge, did a very, very straight-faced, but I think probably still in advance of the landing 
uh, a history of the magical elements and themes in Shakespeare. Uh, Leonard Woodbridge is a bigger fan of Fraser, I think, than most people are in this day and age. Um, this book by Priscilla Costello focuses in on the astrological. And again, if you go back to, um, uh, you know, King Lear, we have the, the famous line, uh, the, the fault lies, uh, not in the stars, but in ourselves. Um, Shakespeare spends a great many uh, bits of of various plays sort of wrestling with that whole question is what's dis- what's destined what do we make for ourselves that is in many ways the great question of the early modern I think there might be star-crossed lovers in in one of the There books. might be star-crossed lovers in in another play uh the name of which escapes me but Priscilla Costello uh, it does not escape me by the way <laughs> Yes. Uh, we're, we're sick, but don't write in, kids. Yeah, don't, 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 don't write in. No, no, e- no emails. Um, but Priscilla Costello, uh, has focused on astrology. And again, this is not, despite the back cover, uh, margin size, this is not necessarily an insane thesis. Uh, it may be being published by an insane publisher. Right. It's not like the Nordic aliens behind Shakespeare. That would be a different. No, thing. that would be crazy people talk. Although there are some pretty significant imputations in Cymbeline, which we don't have time to get into. But the, um, uh, but the question that, you know, Shakespeare absolutely would have been totally familiar with astrology, even if he personally did not dictate his life by astrology, he would have been aware of people who did. He would have been friends with people who did. It would be, um, uh, no more alien to his worldview than, um, uh, believing in, uh, uh, DNA is to ours. And so, uh, the notion of how much of that is in Shakespeare's plays is a completely legitimate question. And the exclusion of that from Shakespearean discussion by so-called Shakespearean scholars is an illegitimate exclusion, which leads publishers like Ibis Press to write books about it instead of proper publishers. So take that Shakespeare scholars right. everywhere. Well, they can probably take more. They can take a serious inquiry into astrological imagery in Shakespeare and sell more copies of it to the new age fans than they probably could to the scholars. This is absolutely true. And um, uh, uh, so I don't, I don't blame Priscilla Costello for her choice of publishers either. Um, and there are, you know, footnotes, there's endnotes, there's all kinds of, it's a long freaking uh, bibliography. So the skin and the bones of a proper book on Shakespeare are here and the flesh, of course, well, that's uh, that depends on the eating. So th- there you go, folks. The uh, margin rule is a guideline, not a purely determinative fact. And uh, since we'll have to rev up our flashback machine to take us from Treadwell's to the uh, Tate Modern Bookshop, I think it's time for us to uh, go to commercial because those revving sounds are kind of out. The covert agents of Delta Green fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. Your players are those agents. As their GM, you need to handle them. That's why you need the Delta Green Handler's Guide, the game's game moderator-only rulebook. Including such essential eyes-only features as... A history of the world of Delta Green, from pre-human times to the present day, with campaign tips and scenario seeds on every page. Sinister rituals, unnatural entities, and reality-shattering great old ones. New threats 
threats to shock and terrify your agents. The secret of Delta Green organization in deep and disturbing detail. And the other ruthless conspiracy that claims it is the real Delta Green. Oh, those jerks again. Ah. Uh. Also includes Operation Fulminate, the Sentinels of Twilight, a sample scenario ready to play. Your players, they are the apocalypse. You, you moderate their apocalypse. With the Delta Green Handler's Guide. From Arc Dream Publishing. So we're back to look at the rest of Ken's book haul, and we've moved on from Treadwells to a couple of titles that you picked up at the Tate Modern. And uh, had we left ourselves more time to uh, poke around in that bookstore, we would have found uh, more things. I found a couple of books that I wish had existed uh, when I wrote uh, Dream Hounds of Paris, because uh, there are a couple of books now on the uh, women of surrealism. That was hard to find info on at the time. Uh, but since I'm not writing that book now, it's already written. I didn't pick those up. But you picked up Nowhere Lands, an Atlas of Vanished Countries, 1840 to 1975 by Bjorn Berge. Yeah, uh, this is basically a book of actual countries that existed, or at least existed long enough to issue postage stamps, which is the sort of brilliant graphic uh uh, uh, realization of the publisher or the author that you could have these lovely postage stamps as your main graphic element so you could cheap out on the maps, which they indeed did. Although the maps are better than the, um, uh, than the one in that atlas of, of evil places or whatever it was that we talked about earlier. Um, and these are real, like I say, real countries, places that had separatist movements or that existed, uh, in terms of, uh, an independent, uh, uh, jurisdiction at least for long enough to issue a stamp. And this might be Biafra in Nigeria, or I guess the question is, is it in Nigeria was sort of a fraught question there. Uh, the far Eastern Republic, which briefly existed between, uh, Bolshevism and more Bolshevism. Manchukuo, the gem of the greater co-prosperity co sphere, uh, the Channel Islands, Helgoland, all manner of places of that ilk. And for them, there is a brief little, uh, potted history, uh, focusing on the, uh, on the uh, unusual or arcane or the, or the negative uh, perhaps. And then uh, a tiny uh, okay map and then the postage stamp and guides to further reading. If that is the way that you want to do uh, next up, we have uh, this is your, your classic example of something that uh, tells you on the tin, what you're, what you're getting the ghost, a cultural history by Susan Owens. And by God, you are getting the ghost, a cultural history by Susan Owens. Susan Owens is an art historian. Um, and so this is, how ghosts have been depicted in art and in poetry by uh, mostly British people. Uh, and the first example that she gives is from 1014 AD. Uh, I bet she could have found more ghosts if she'd kept going, but she starts in 1014 on the grounds you have to start somewhere and uh, runs through. And there are many beautiful pictures. So there's medieval illuminated manuscripts depicting ghosts. There are um, uh, uh, woodcuts from the, uh, sweet Elizabethan and Tudor eras. There's cartoons. There's uh, pre-Raphaelite drawings. There's stage instructions for staging Hamlet. There's all manner of wonderful uh, images of ghosts going down to pretty much the modern era. And uh, this is just what do ghosts look like? What do we think of ghosts? This is a... I mean, first of all, it's just lovely. It's a beautiful book. It's from the good people at the Tate, and they and they put it all together. Uh, one imagines with mostly the resources of the real Tate, not the new Tate, uh, but they were selling it in the new Tate. So we, we picked it up there. Um, and it, uh, if you're doing any sort of, uh, 
ghost-based uh, game, whether it be M.R. James-inspired or a straight-up Thulu, or um, having medieval ghosts show up in your F-20 game, this would be a lovely thing to look at for inspiration, and it's just a nice thing to have for your history of the ghost. There's another book by R.C. Finucane, which is another um, uh, cultural history of the ghost, which is more of an experience, like a a psychological history, like what do people see when they see ghosts type book. Um, so if you get uh, Ghosts, Appearances of the Dead and Cultural Transformation by Ronald Finucane, um, you uh, can put that next to Susan Owens's A Cultural History of the Ghost, assuming you don't shelf things by alphabetical order. Uh, but it, but they would be complementary, not uh, rival books. Now it's time to reach into the uh, either reddish-orange or orangish-red plastic bag. Uh, it says foils on it. And uh, first we come to a title that uh, I think, as far as things for you to pick up, this, this couldn't be more of a no-brainer. We have Colin McEvity's Cities of the Classical World, an atlas and gazetteer of 120 centers of ancient civilization. Yeah, uh, Colin McEvity, for those of you who uh, don't know, uh, was the author and cartographer of a number of magnificent uh, historical atlases. They came up from Penguin um, over the basically the decade of the uh, 80s and 90s, and uh, uh, they spent a little bit of time getting uh, slightly uh, reissued. But uh, McEvity uh, was at work on, uh, he was also a demographic historian. He wrote uh, something called the Atlas of Population History. And I can tell you that it is an Atlas of World Population History. And I can tell you that that book is sitting on my desk right now in the instant grab position. Because it is not only uh, a full-on, how many people were where for all of human history, it is the only book like that. And it came out in 1978. So it's sort of a uh, shocker uh, that that is still the best book on the topic. But this was the book that he was working on uh, when he died in 2005. Uh, he had completed most of it. And with the help of his heirs and his longtime uh, cartographer partner, they uh, put together uh, this, which is most of the book. Uh, there are the, the notion is that he takes cities from the classical world, the classical world being defined as the Greco-Roman world. Uh, the farthest east you get is Ketesiphon. The farthest south you get is Memphis in Egypt. Farthest north you get is York in Britain. Um, uh, and so it uh, covers those, uh, uh, a bunch of cities, about 120 uh, over that period. So from, say, Bronze Age up to the fall of Rome and gives you the uh, as close as you can what they were like and what the population was. So if you are running a game, say set in the Hellenistic era, it's very useful. And if you are interested in classical urban geography and classical urban demography, it is also very useful. He did not live to finish the populations for all of them or to do the big chart that the text sometimes refers to, but it's still uh, a magnificent uh, a piece of work, a piece of a, of a, of a summa of a life, uh, well-spent writing terrific uh, atlases. And if you don't have uh, Colin McEvity's atlases already, I urge you to rush right out and get them all. Uh, they're all pretty terrific. Uh, the European history is probably his strongest uh, uh, set, but uh, even his atlas of Pacific history and North American history, where he is weakest, are, are still better than the competition, uh, which is more of an indictment of the competition. So uh, next up, Foyles was only just begun to thrust things at you that you had to buy. So uh, next, uh, it went for one that it was fairly confident in. I saw its sly smile as, as it pushed it toward you. The Man Who Was George Smiley, The Life of John Bingham, written by Michael Yeago. 
Yes, the theory being, um, and I think it's fairly well accepted in uh, Le Carreology, that John Le Carre based the character of George Smiley on the guy who was John Le Carre's boss, or David Cornwell's boss, because that's his real name. And when you work for MI5, even <laughs> even in the 60s, you had to give your real name, I'll bet. Um <laughs> And so, uh, John Bingham was his boss. And in the same way that Ian Fleming took his boss and made him M, uh, in, uh, in the James Bond stories, uh, David Cornwell took John Bingham and made him the model of George Smiley in the John Le novels. Um, Bingham, uh, also, it turns out, uh, tried to write thrillers and maybe was a little bit disturbed by the fact that his thrillers didn't sell as well as John Le Carre's right. <laughs> did. And um, he's selling tons of books by making me boring. <laughs> what? <laughs> How does that huh? happen? So he's got, um, uh, he's, he, he basically, he runs, um, John Bigham is a, is a fundamentally a, uh, a lifelong, uh, spy of the sort that Smiley is an agent runner, a, uh, troubleshooter and interrogator. He doesn't go around, uh, blowing up volcanoes like James Bond. He does sort of the, the bureaucratic knife fighty part of being a spy and, um, uh, uh, had it as far as anyone can tell an exemplary career, uh, a terrific job. Uh, everyone liked him. Um, and, uh, this is about him, and I don't know an awful lot about John Bingham, because if you're a really good spy, you stay out of the history books. But uh, here's a whole biography of him, and I look forward to finding out. Certainly, I look forward to finding out what he was up to in the uh, 50s and 60s, because, of course, that's that's the big question is, you know, if you're in MI5, uh, what did you miss and when did you miss it? Uh, next up, we have Peter Ackroyd's Civil War. And the reason by that is that it's a book about the English Civil War by Peter Ackroyd. Yes. Need we say more? I, I don't know that we need to. Peter Ackroyd, another one of my buy-on-site authors, he's doing a whole history of Britain. Civil War, I believe, is the third volume. Um, and I got it because at some point I'm going to be doing a uh, book on London in the 1630s uh, for Lamentations of the Flame Princess. And turns out, there's not a lot about London in the 1630s, so I figured if Peter Ackroyd can give me the 10,000-foot view of the 1630s, that will get me started uh, into that. But also, it covers the whole uh, Stuart uh, ascendancy, so it goes from James I to James II, but calling it the stupid waste of time Stuarts would probably not have sold as well. <laughs> yeah, Civil War, is, is, it, it looks nice on the cover. Um, yep. It, it's in, it looks like Caslon Old Style. With, uh, with a gradient. Yeah, his, his History of the Tudors, by the way, is called The Tudors and is really, really good and should be read by all. Uh, next up, we have, uh, we're heading into true crime category here in the pile, The Hunt for the 60s Ripper by uh, Robin Gerasi. All right, in 1964 and 1965, there was a serial killer who killed seven or eight women in and around the Hammersmith area in London. Um, Sight of Dragon and- Meat side of dragon meat and they were never found. Uh, and so, uh, I think that what Robin Jirasi said is if I just call this person, the sixties ripper, I can sell books. And, um, uh, there's a number of, one assumes possible suspects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a great source, obviously for your fall of Delta green adventures set in Britain. And it's a great book to bring home to your wife when you've been away in London <laughs> without her for a week. Uh, so, uh, I recommend it on both of those cases. Um, it has links to the craze because of course, everything in the London underground of the sixties has links to the craze. Um, 
Uh, Robin Jirasi at least claims that it has links to the Profumo affair, which I'll bet it doesn't because <laughs> unless the, the women were all, um, I guess if the women were all prostitutes, they might have known people who knew people connected to Profumo. But I don't think that the uh, young lady in, the, in question was actually a prostitute. I think she was just a, a nude model. There was someone who was at some party who was at some other party who knew somebody. Yes. This it, would be true. my guess. Yes. Or that one of the uh, patrons of one of the prostitutes had also uh, patronized the same party as, as Profumo. So, so you know, it's a, it's going to be one of those because they don't know about the murder. Um, there's going to be a lot of uh, social history of... Uh, London in the sixties, which is just good stuff and, uh, plenty of, uh, of, uh, lurid, uh, true criminology for those who roll that way. Um, now I heard you at the desk go up and ask where their, uh, histories of Azerbaijan were. And I believe you went away sadly disappointed, but as a, I was as a consolation prize, you got the secret twenties, British intelligence, the Russians and the jazz age by Timothy Phillips. Uh, yeah, this basically sets up the, uh, the, the story of British intelligence and their great worry about the Bolsheviks. Uh, as we all know from watching Riley Ace of Spies or reading biographies of Sidney Riley or just listening to me go on and on about the topic, uh, British intelligence spent a good long time trying to poke the uh, Bolsheviks down at the very beginning and managed to screw it up uh, really dramatically. Uh, there is a uh, another book on the topic by uh, Giles Milton called Russian Roulette, which is about uh, a Russian attempt to um, uh, pester the, the Bolsheviks out of uh, out of power. I, I bought that at uh, Foils when I saw it. It is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, both from the poking the Bolsheviks and the feckless British Secret Service perspectives. Uh, this one, it talks about the domestic uh, hunt for Russian spies in Britain um, and is going to probably peak with the Zinoviev letter, which was forged probably with the connivance of Sir Winston Churchill in an attempt to uh, demonstrate the existence of the real threat. So it's sort of a touch of evil type thing. Um, but also, oh, coincidentally brought down the labor government because, hey, it's an ill wind that blows no good. Am I right? <laughs> well, uh, finally, the the winds of uh, book mania wafted into your hands what is uh, not labeled as such, but uh, is in fact another source book for your 13th age campaign. This is the Hellenistic Far East, Archaeology, Language and Identity in Greek Central Asia by Rachel Mayers. Yeah, this is just about uh, Greek Bactria. Uh, there's not an awful lot known about Greek Bactria. Most of it comes from coin hordes. Uh, there's been one site that has been properly excavated at uh, Iconum. Um, they have not even necessarily agreed on which Alexandria that was. Um, uh, it might have been a different Alexandria, or it might have been uh, a smaller colony that wasn't even Alexandria that didn't get into the histories. Uh, but the but that excavation, the coin hordes, and a very, very little bit of documentary history is all that we have for Greek Bactria. Um, it's a fascinating notion that Alexander is so far the only person to conquer Afghanistan hard enough that his successors kept it for about 200 years and um, uh, then finally gave it back to the Afghans in the person of a bunch of invaders who weren't Afghans either. And they've been pretty intent on holding on to it ever since. They have been very, very much so, even as though they took it from Alexander the Great and no take backs. Uh, but this is, uh, I've, I've been interested in these guys ever since I discovered they existed, this notion that there's this sort of appendage of Alexander the Great's empire that's still banging around invading India and becoming a giant threat hundreds of years after Alexander. Um, and, uh, this is a, the newest, 
uh, such book. It has got a uh, plug on the back from Frank Holt, who is one of the experts on the field. And when he says that it's a, it's a very good book, then that means that this is a book worth picking up. So if you are into Bactria or have your own self a Hellenistic age, uh, 13th age game that may or may not be heading towards India, this would be a valuable book for you to look at. Uh, well, uh, I think, uh, talking for, uh, all this time has, uh, taken your voice from, uh, Nick Nolte today to like uh, early 2000s Nick Nolte, but that's still not good enough. So it's about time that we both uh, had another herbal tea, perhaps crawled back into bed. Uh, so our next episode will be our live from Dragon Meat episode, and that'll be the last episode of 2017. We'll take our customary two-week break, and then we'll be back again in the new year with more uh, Lipton-y gaming, uh, food, what have you, and... Uh, uh, until then, uh, everybody have a safe and uh, happy uh, Christmas holidays, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll be revving up and uh, possibly being healthy again in 2018. Can you believe it, Ken? 2018. I am still having real uh, existential problems with 2017. So. <laughs> as, all, as, as we all are. <laughs> right. So 2018 should be more of the same, only now with an election. Yay. Yay. Um, yes, uh, everyone, enjoy your holidays. Enjoy your eggnog, your fruitcake, your presents, your loved ones, your your tinsel, uh, your non-denominational trappings of all kinds. And uh, also, you know, hey, uh, have, have a good one and be nice to everyone. Uh, get super roaring drunk uh, over the new year and try and keep that momentum going into 2018. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Fagalm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Follow the maze of mystery to the ocean of clues alongside such patrons as... David Mascari. John Rogers. Ross Ireland. Graham Wells. And Jeremy Forbing. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.